This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Frontier Airlines is in comeback mode, at least financially. The Denver-based low-cost carrier that features photos of animals on the tails of its planes reported a net income of $200 million in 2016. That's up nearly 43 percent from 2014. Now the company is going for an IPO to attract more investment. But while Frontier's profits are soaring, its customer service ranking is the second worst among U.S. airlines. John Ostrauer is the aviation editor for CNN. He joins us from Seattle. John, welcome. Thanks for having me. Frontier has a long history in Colorado with a few ups and downs. Uh, Most recently, the airline was saved from bankruptcy in 2009 when it was purchased by Republic Airways. It was sold to Indigo Partners in 2013. And then the following year, Frontier transformed into this thing called an ultra-low-cost carrier where customers pay for extra options like pre-assigned seats and carry-on bags and, and, and things like that. John, can you give us the gist of this IPO that is coming from Frontier? What's on the line here for this airline? Well, this will be the first IPO that we see in the airline industry uh, since Virgin America uh, went public three years ago. And that's a that's a big change for the airline industry, which has really seen a, a, a decade of consolidation. So what you've seen is really kind of three major segments of the industry emerging. You get the full, full-size carriers, you have the sort of mid-range guys, the Alaskas, the Southwests, the JetBlues of the world, and then you've got ultra-low-cost carriers like Frontier and Spirit Airlines, who are really growing at the fastest rate of anyone of this increasingly smaller batch of airlines. They had $1.7 billion in operating revenue last year. $700 million of that came from baggage fees. Huh. So you, you, what, we do, what we're seeing here is really an emergence of, of a model for air travel that really is ultimately uh, the Walmart, so to speak, of, of flying. And as far as the initial public offering goes, Tapping into uh, outside shareholders ultimately is is going to be their path for not only getting a return on on their initial investment, but also for growth going forward as this fastest growing model in the United States. So essentially, what you're saying is that people are paying for these things like baggage. That you know, you typically on let's say United or uh, a Delta airline, one of the big airlines, you have that kind of bundled possibly into the ticket cost. At Frontier and let's say Spirit, these ultra low cost carriers, you're going to pay extra for that, and that's where this funding model really kicks into high gear. Exactly. And and the whole idea of an ultra low cost carrier really centers around getting in front of the top level of a list of fares. So if you can say, we're going to give you an initial fare of $50 between Denver and Dallas, that would show up in front of an American Airlines flight. On one of those online travel sites, right? Exactly, exactly. And this is a model that has been built out of the idea that, you know, Americans and flyers around the world say, okay, well, you know, I would pay for better food on an airplane or I'd pay for better, better legroom, whatever. But the, the buying behavior of the majority of flyers is mostly centered around cost and how much the ticket costs when you make that first, that first purchase. What about this customer service then? I mean, Frontier's customer service ranks only ahead of Spirit Airlines, the other ultra-low-cost carrier, and that's according to the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Does that matter to, to people when they're looking for something that's just like the bottom line of a ticket cost? Actually, stepping back from this, actually, the CEO of uh, Spirit Airlines, the prime ultra-low-cost competitor to Frontier, uh, actually said last week, when... The mainline carriers, when the 
Delta, United, and Americans of the world started coming close or matching the prices of those tickets, not having a customer service background to fall back on, really ultimately really hurt them significantly. Because once prices is all, you know, all things being equal, yeah, you, you start to see uh, the customer service element become more and more important here. What you're seeing from Spirit and what ultimately I think that is going to have to happen for Frontier to, as it matures as a, as a public company, is that this is going to be more of a baseline for customer service. And striking that balance then between customer service and being the lowest ticket price on one of those travel websites. Exactly. Part of the, 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 the conundrum here is a low-cost model, an ultra-low-cost model that says, well, we're not going to uh, ha- necessarily have a number that you can call to talk to a human being or, we're, we're, you're, or the check-in is going to be entirely automated. So it's, it's the lack of touch points. In this particular situation with Frontier and Spirit, they have really kind of capitalized on the fact that there is, a, there is an enormous demand for air travel. There is also an enormous demand for a more Walmart model of air travel where, where you don't get all of these extras. Uh, and, what, and the funny thing about all of this is that the big carriers are narrowing the gap between them. And in doing so, you, you see more unbundling and you see a, a more, more fees and because the bottom line is – and Frontier has realized this – that ancillary revenue, as it's, as it's called, these add-ons, is phenomenally lucrative. And that brings up a report you just filed that says American Airlines is essentially crunching the space between seats to impact revenue for that airline. Americans' decision to squeeze more seats in, going to more than 170 seats on a new generation of of Boeing aircraft that are coming into the fleet later this year, is driven by this relentless need to lower your costs. And on an airplane, the more seats you have in in that aluminum shell, the lower your costs are going to be because you're able to divide by a larger number. It's just – it's a straight math. The only problem with that is from a customer service perspective – Again, the, the gap is narrowing between these ultra low cost carriers, which have you know twenty eight inches between seats, to American, which is going to have three rows in this airplane that are at twenty nine, and the the rest of the main uh, main economy cabin at, at thirty inches. So it's this kind of compression that's gone on as the gap is narrowing. So what ultimately you're seeing from from the mainline carriers, very much driven by the frontiers and the spirits of the world is this desire to serve all markets and be all things to all people. The risk of that is that you're not doing a very good job of doing any one thing really well. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're speaking with John Ostrauer, an aviation editor with CNN, about the upcoming IPO from Frontier Airlines, which is based in Denver. We're also talking about customer service on airplanes, as well as the ultra-low-cost carrier model that is uh, impacting the airline industry as a whole. John, we've been speaking about profits and customer service and and how the two are in balance with each other or sometimes out of balance with each other. Does an airline's customer service ranking then really matter to investors when they're looking to back an airline like Frontier? I think the jury is out uh, on whether or not customer service matters. I think the body language from investors and from Wall Street indicates that that is not the case. Only if it is can be demonstrably shown that it is good for the bottom line. It, it sort of it is a cold hard calculation in that respect. I mean, we saw this uh, just recently when American Airlines 
unilaterally, I, I may add, announced a, a mid-contract pay raise for its flight attendants and pilots. And part of the justification for that was, number one, put them on parity with United and uh, and Delta, but also to improve customer service. The problem is that Wall Street, which eviscerated American for doing this, wants its payout now. But I'm also thinking back to when United did, you know, pull that customer off its plane. United shares fell 4% over the course of that week. And I've read that Warren Buffett uh, lost $52.4 million in value for his United stock. So are, are things changing where maybe investors are looking a bit more at customer service as, as we, we see these events kind of unfold? Certainly after what happened on United, there is a greater focus on customer service. We see that in the policy changes from United. But I, that what we're also seeing is this trend of – from American, you know, reducing legroom even more on their new Boeing aircraft. So you see these certainly very much a dichotomy of, of attitudes here, which is like, yes, we're going to improve customer service, but the experience on board is going to be more bare bones. So it's hard to reconcile those two things <laughs> side by side. It's, right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I want to move now to the pilots and employees of Frontier Airlines. Uh, just recently, pilots picketed outside the headquarters of the airline in Denver. I'm wondering how that will impact the IPO and the profitability of this airline. So this is all against the backdrop of United American and Delta focusing on higher wages for pilots. And this all comes at the end of a very, very long stretch of, of industry consolidation where the pay rates are all getting uh, getting shifted right now. As American pilots are, are getting an unexpected mid-contract pay increase to get them on par with United and Delta, that's only going to increase the pressure for Frontier to, to do the same. The challenge of this, and this is what, um, what ultimately Frontier is going to face, is managing that kind of strategic tension of a model that says your costs have to be as low as, as humanly possible because you're trying to, to compete on cost alone and the necessity of – your labor base that has endured tremendous upheaval and ultimately looks at the rest of the industry and says, well, why are we the, the odd man out here? Denver still considers Frontier to be a hometown airline, but it has steadily downsized at Denver International Airport. The Denver Post reports in 2013, over 90 percent of Frontier flights began or ended at DIA. Last December, that number was just 45 percent. Are there any signs that Frontier will continue to downsize here in Denver? As far as, as, far as Denver goes, I think it, it's going to uh, largely depend on, on how United, the other behemoth at DIA, uh, really responds. So for years, you had a United hub in Denver, still do. Right. Uh, and you had a front, the Frontier home, which looked a lot like a hub and spoke model, the connecting between points around the U.S. And they were competing, competing in, that, in that realm. So what you see now is you see a lot of uh, sort of the decentralization of, of Frontier's fleet, a lot of point-to-point -point flying. It's not necessarily connections-based. It's where do people want to fly and where do they want to go from and to and just fly those routes. And it doesn't rely nearly as much on connecting traffic and it's really dispersed throughout throughout the country. And you see that with Spirit and you, know, you see them sort of going after individual markets that have been either – ripe for a new new competition that have that have ultimately atrophied um, as a result of consolidation. In terms of what this means for, for Denver, I, I think it's going to be a wait and see. I think it, you know, the airline will certainly find its home there. 
but I think that that you're again you're going to see this point to point model ultimately the way that they're going and going back to a more hub structure is probably is certainly not going to be where they're where they're headed. John, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. John Ostrower is an aviation editor with CNN. He spoke to us about Denver-based Frontier Airlines going public. It's looking for investors. Find a link to the company's filing at cprnews.org. If you've been flying someone else, give Frontier a try. See what you've been missing from the ground up to the sky. Frontier. Just ahead, hemp has more in common with corn than marijuana, but it still struggles with guilt by association. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. From the ground up to the sky, You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. As a Colorado farm crop, hemp has more in common with corn than with its intoxicating cousin, marijuana, but it still suffers from guilt by association. Federal policies make it risky for growers to plant hemp, but the state's trying to remove some obstacles. Dwayne Sinning is charged with helping to turn hemp legit. He's the director of the Colorado Department of Agriculture's Industrial Hemp Program. Welcome. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks for having me today. So hemp is not the same as marijuana. So briefly give us a very quick lesson on the differences. So they're the, actually the same plant, right. but they are have a different THC content, which is what gets you high. So kind of a way to look at it is you've both, both are a Ford, both are a Mustang. One of them has a big engine and is yellow, and the other one is red and has a much smaller engine. And, of course, that smaller engine is hemp, right? That smaller engine is hemp if you're looking for THC. It's a much larger engine if you're looking for all the multiple of uses that it has. So if hemp as a crop is is not intoxicating, has some intoxicating effects, why is it much more complicated to grow than, say, pinto beans or sweet corn? Because you can't tell it until looking at it in the field from its intoxicating cousin. So the guardrails were kind of put on to allow farmers the ability to grow it, but make sure that they weren't artificially growing something that had an intoxicating effect. So with corn, you can say that's corn, but with, with hemp, you have to take it to a lab or something? To You do have to take it to a lab. You can't tell it by looking at it. Governor John Hickenlooper has a bill on his desk right now that will guarantee water rights for hemp farmers. Why is that a big deal? Well, the federal government talks about colored water, and colored water would mean anything that goes through a federal reservoir. Even the water that falls here in Colorado goes into a uh, may go into a federal reservoir, and that water would be restricted. So what that bill does, as I understand it, is gives Coloradans the right to use water that fell here first. And so... These reservoirs that this water will go to, I mean, why is it different than, let's say, corn or, or, or tomatoes or other plants in, in Colorado? Why is this so important? Uh, again, it has to do with the federal regulations that you see tied to uh, marijuana, but also tied to hemp, w- which we got through the farm bill. Was there pushback to this bill that's now on the governor's desk? I don't believe so. I think it was pretty uh, pretty well uh, through the legislative process that it was very well supported, and I know the industry supports it. And, and is... Forgive me here in terms of my my ignorance, but in terms of the federal regulations for for marijuana, does that tie directly to hemp and things like that? The federal regulations, uh, probably the best place they uh, tie together is what's called the Cole Memorandum, which goes way back to 2013. And it talks about at the federal level what the feds look for 
for states to do if they're doing marijuana. At the time the bill was, uh, the memo was written by uh, a district, uh, Deputy Attorney General Cole, marijuana included hemp. Hemp had not been broken out from the farm bill. So that's really all the guidance we have as far as the two separations. I see. Now, last year, your department launched uh, something called a seed certification program. What does it mean to certify a hemp seed? So uh, most crops that you grow in the state, um, pinto beans, as you mentioned, would have a certified seed program. And what that does is says it's pure, it's true to type, it doesn't have noxious weeds, it doesn't have any diseases. So the farmer should expect to get what he pays for. That's certified seed. CDA-approved certified seed goes one step farther, and that looks at the THC level. So not only is that variety certified seed, means it was grown pure, but the state will have done a job on the front end to grow those varieties out and to verify that those varieties, if they're grown pure, they will be true to type and stay below 0.3% THC. Because that is the point below where where people can possibly get high off this stuff. It's actually higher than that, Uh, but the 0.3% is what is defined in the federal farm bill as industrial hemp. Now, I've read that if you use seeds from, from let's say, last year's crop over and over, that the THC level may change. Is that a concern? It may change. So you'll have genetic drift. So when you do a seed certification program, uh, you'll walk through the field and you'll look for off types. I mean, every type, every plant has some off types. And so you're taking those out. Uh, hemp is no different. And what generally you see is what we have seen is that if you're not roguing those seeds, if you're just harvesting one generation or the next generation, it tends to drift up. You also don't know if it's crossed with something else. So unless you've grown it as certified seed, looked for isolation, you don't know if there's been cross-pollination or anything else. So you don't know what that next generation is. So how will this certified seed program help with the, the industry overall? Well, so on a, right now, a farmer plants what I would call buyer beware seed. You may be planting it from getting it from someone that has all good intentions, could have even been certified seed in another country that wasn't even tr- uh, tried here. And you don't know what that THC level will be in that variety. With CDA-approved certified seed, we will have checked that on the front end. The variety will pass. We'll have made sure it was grown under isolation so it wasn't crossed. We'll have walked those fields. Actually, Colorado State University and the Colorado Seed Growers will have walked those fields to make sure they're true to type. And then when a farmer buys it, he ought to be able to treat it just like he does corn. He shouldn't have to worry about it going over and above. So is the idea then to bring more farmers into this uh, industry because now they have this seed to look at and they can go, this seed is going to be correct to, to grow according to Colorado? It, uh, I don't know if bringing them into, more, more into is maybe the, not, not quite the right way to say it. Okay. What we're doing is trying to make it same legitimacy, same decisions that a farmer can pick and choose industrial hemp in these varieties as he may choose to grow corn or wheat or alfalfa. It just gives him another... Uh, crop to put on his palette of choices. Got it. Now, what happens if you test a crop that is above this three-tenths of 1% THC? So a crop that's over three-tenths of 1% THC is no longer industrial hemp. By definition in the Constitution, as well as in the Farm Bill, it becomes marijuana. So uh, our advisory committee, working with uh, folks in law enforcement and the attorney general's office even, uh, developed kind of a two-tiered system. So if it's 0.3 to 1, we realize it has no intoxicating effect. It's still marijuana. So you can just chose, choose to destroy it on site. Uh, can't be used for human consumption. So can't transport it because it would be an illegal marijuana crop. 
uh, and it can't enter the stream of commerce, and we wouldn't fine you. It doesn't mean anything about any criminal penalty that you may suffer, but so far we haven't seen any law enforcement that's really concerned because there's no intoxicating effect. Hmm. Once it goes over 1% and there may be some potential for intoxicating effect, it's a different issue. Uh, We then reach out to law enforcement as well. Sometimes if it's just barely over 1%, we may contact the registrant so that we can act as an intermediary so that law enforcement knows. And then at that time, we may also find somebody for not monitoring their crop, watching their crop. How many times has that happened? We have had a few times where it's gone over uh, 1%. We've had one that actually went over 2%. Um, But in all those cases, it was small quantities. It seemed to be inadvertent. We worked with law enforcement and with the registrant. And uh, we've taken the approach that, you know, the best way to, to uh, work on compliance, making sure it's below over um, under 0.3, is to do that through an education process, not through a heavy hand. And so we've tried to work with those registrants. Uh, and in every case, the registrant has made the choice, yeah, I want to get this taken care of because I'm not interested in, in a fine. And I'm not interested in criminal charges. So it usually happens rather quickly. So they destroy their crop. They destroy their crop. How? What is the percentage of the total hemp crop that was destroyed last year? Last year, the total hemp crop that was destroyed was about 25%. That's not a small number. That's not a small number. But I always take and look and, and, and uh, turn this around. If you look at a crop, first I'd tell you that that really comes down to what amounts to about three varieties accounted for over 80% of that. So it really reinforces the importance of certified seed, picking your variety, making sure that you know what you're planting. But beyond that, I would also say that some material may slide over. We worked hard to make sure that farmers had access to labs that they can monitor those THC levels. Those That costs money. If you take a, also look at growing properly and all those techniques, fertilizing, those all cost more. So to be fair to the guy that met those 75% that met the, uh, uh, the THC limit, stayed yeah. below it, it would be unfair for us to allow that material to enter in the marketplace either. Hemp has been touted as a crop that can lessen the dependence on fossil fuels. Is there truth in in that? There is some truth in that. If you were to look at canola, for instance, uh, you see that used a lot in Europe. And canola has a high oil content. So does hemp. Uh, In 2014, when hemp first started in the state, I was getting calls almost daily, at least every week, about uh, this was going to be the next fossil fuel replacement. Hmm. Almost none of that in 2015 and never a call in 2016. Why did that happen? It wasn't because it couldn't be done. It's because in 2014, if you look at the price of a barrel of oil, it was hundred over $100. Today, it's less than $50. So it's all economics. And, and it's not just the, the, the biofuels. It's, it's other things as well that this product can be made with. Absolutely. Europe is looking at it as, as a potential replacement for the bags we all use uh, when we leave the grocery store because it breaks down and yet is very strong. The Trump administration has signaled that it is not out to harass hemp farmers, but it has also signaled an unfriendliness to cannabis and to marijuana. Do you think hemp farming by association could lose ground politically? I don't think so. And the reason I I say that is uh, in conversations I've had with uh, several members of the congressional delegations in D.C., they've indicated that this really is a farming issue. It's not so much a drug issue. And we need to find ways to work with the industry and with Congress 
to make sure that we can differentiate and separate these. Uh, and so therefore, they, they've really indicated that this is a congressional matter, not an executive matter. I guess the bottom line is, given all the risk and the challenges and the regulations and the changing regulations, is hemp farming a good bet for someone wanting to get into the industry? I always tell people, I'm not here to to determine what your risk is. Uh, that's really every farmer. If you, if you weren't uh, going to take any risk, you probably would never take that tractor out of your barn. I, I'm here just to tell you, uh, make sure you understand your risks and uh, make sure that we can move it as risk-free as we can for you. And, and are you sharing what you're learning with, with other states around the country dealing with us? We, we are. Last fall, we invited uh, uh, other states to come to Colorado. We had the first National Hemp Regulatory Conference here in Colorado. We co-hosted it with Kentucky, Minnesota, and Vermont. And we had 30 states, uh, an Indian tribe, and federal, uh, several federal agencies, including the DEA, come and visit and talk about the issues that we're facing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. Dwayne Sinning, uh, Sinning, sorry, directs the Colorado Department of Agriculture's Industrial Hemp Program. That is a mouthful. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Water contaminated with lead flowed into homes in Flint, Michigan, three years ago. The public health crisis stunned composer Andrea Ramsey of Boulder, so she wrote a choral piece about it. It's called But a Flint Holds Fire. It starts with a poem from the 1800s that compares the beauty of gemstones like sapphires to a flint lying in the mud. It also uses the words of Flint's teens describing how their water changed. This is the Cincinnati Children's Choir, just one of the youth choirs around the country that have performed the new piece. On Sunday, Young Voices of Colorado will perform it Sunday in Denver. Composer Andrea Ramsey spoke with Ryan Warner. Andrea Ramsey, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. How did you get the idea to focus on Flint in the first place? You know, I was a a doc student at Michigan State University from 2010 to 2013. And after I left, the very next year was when the crisis began. Um, And I, I, I... couldn't help it. I had flown out of the Flint airport sometimes, and I was thinking about this community of 100,000 plus with without drinkable water. And I kept waiting for something to happen, and nothing was happening. And it was this huge humanitarian crisis that was completely being ignored. Um, so I just kept my eye on it and then um, and then connected the dots and thought, I'm, I'm going to write a piece about this um, that's going to reach a lot of different groups. And it turns out that it has. Um, we're going to get to the, the words of Flint's teens shortly. But we mentioned a poem that you have also based this on in part. It's written in the 1800s by the English poet Christina Rossetti, and it gives this piece its title. Will you read it for us? Sure. An emerald is as green as grass, a ruby red as blood, a sapphire shines as blue as heaven, a flint lies in the mud. A diamond is a brilliant stone to catch the world's desire. An opal holds a fiery spark, but a flint holds fire. But a flint holds fire. 
Yes. Thus the title of this piece. Talk about this poem, what it means to you, how you found it. The story of finding it was kind of hilarious, actually. I was I was hoping, actually, to connect with a poet from Flint or, or someone who had written poetry about the issue. So and, I was and doing, borrow those words. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was doing a lot of searching on the Internet, and I, I noticed that in all the results, um, I kept seeing Christina Rossetti pop up, which I thought was odd, but I, I, it was quite some time before I finally got, you know, out of curiosity up to, okay, I'm going to click on this and see what it is. Oh, it's because you, you were probably typing... Flint poetry. Yeah, absolutely. And then it comes up because she uses the word flint. Right. Okay. Um, and so then when I when I read the poem, I my I just went slack jaw. I thought this is perfect. To me, um, the the idea of the of the flint being in the mud of being overlooked absolutely represents this situation. But then this is a, a vibrant community that is is quite powerful and active right now and trying to to get their voice heard about the situation. So this idea of but a flint holds fire. There's an idea also, of an endurance in that, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And endurance, I think, is necessary in this situation right. for that community. Well, as I mentioned, uh, the spoken word elements of this piece are based on the words of Flint teens. Um, will you read some of what they wrote for us? Just a few examples. Um, sure. Here's one. Uh, there is no cure for lead poisoning. During the time the news was telling people not to drink the water, my family didn't have cable or internet, so we didn't know. We had no other choice but to drink the water. Or another, my siblings and I were all tested for lead poisoning. A week passes, and my mom finds out that all four of her kids have lead poisoning, including the baby. My mom and dad were angry. I didn't want to believe it was true. A week passes, and my mom finds out that all four of her kids have lead poisoning, including the baby. And these become refrains in in the piece. How did you collect the teens' thoughts on what was happening in their city? With like, yeah. So I, I collaborated with Dr. Karen Salvador, who's the music education professor at at University of Michigan Flint, and she reached out to various choir directors in Flint and in Flint Township, um, and we created some prompts. The students responded to these answers, and we asked them things like, how did the water crisis impact you? Or what are the great things about Flint that you wish more people knew about? And just to solicit sort of their experiences and their thoughts on the poem as well. And that's how we got these writings. And some of them were mailed, some of them were scanned and sent to me. And then I I sort of went through them and decided on the excerpts. How did reading them affect you? It was... um, yeah, it was really powerful. It, I, I, I just remember sitting at my coffee table, sort of going through these papers, um, getting teary, reading the responses. And some of them, you know, I, one student in particular said to me, I think you can make this beautiful and artistic, but you need to tell the facts. Don't sugarcoat this. Mm. Um, you know, there's no cure for lead poisoning. We're paying for water that we can't use. You can make it beautiful and artistic, but include the facts. And that really sort of galvanized me that this had to be honest. Um, and artistic at the same time. And you infuse hope into this. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I want there to be hope. And because for many of these people, one of the, one of the other horrible things that have, has come out of it is that, you know, anytime they tell people their hometown, this is the association immediately is a water crisis, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's a, a really negative thing. So tell me the beautiful things about Flint. And so we got some of those as well. Yeah. Would you read some of those? Sure. This, uh, we are strong together. No matter how deep and dark the mud is, this is our home. The people in Flint hold true and bright. We are powerful. No one should feel alone in times like this. You will be going to Flint in the fall for the first public performance of the piece there. 
have you gotten any feedback from the choirs that have already performed it elsewhere? Um, sure. So what I've heard from most of the groups is that it, it's been really impactful to the singers um, in terms of understanding, uh, gaining empathy for this community. And then also uh, many of the choirs have shared the QR code to help donate to Flint Rising in their programs. So hopefully we're raising some money there as well. The QR uh, code, that's the thing you scan and it sort yeah, of leads you to a website. Yeah, it sends you to the Flint Rising site so mm. that you can donate. You know, but mostly I, the feedback has been really positive in, in sort of striking that balance between the aesthetic beauty you want for a treble choir and, and also the reality of the crisis. Well, why don't we go out on a clip that uh, reminds the audience that while opals are fiery, uh, referring back to the poem here, a flint holds fire. Yeah. Thank good. you for being with us. Thank you. Composer Andrea Ramsey is Associate Director of Choral Studies at CU Boulder. Colorado Young Voices will perform her piece, But a Flint Holds Fire, during their spring concert Sunday afternoon at the Newman Center in Denver. There's a video of a previous performance at cprnews.org. Up next, a new book explores what it means to be socially awkward. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. From your first slow dance to calling someone by the wrong name, everyone has moments when things just don't go right. But imagine living your life in a perpetual state of awkwardness. How does one navigate the world and everyone in it without, quote, social fluency? Taitashiro is a former CU Boulder professor and the author of the new book, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why. That's awesome. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. I imagine everyone has their awkward moments, but you're talking about something kind of different. Isn't that right? That's right. So an awkward moment is just when we deviate from a minor social expectation. So that could be uh, unzip zipper or spinach in the front teeth. These aren't the worst things in the world, but they are very embarrassing when they happen. And everybody has awkward moments. But about 15% of the people in the population are socially awkward. And so this means that most social situations feel a little bit uncomfortable or unsure for them. Now, your book begins with a story of family friends of yours struggling to understand why their little boy is awkward. And they turn to you because they say, you're awkward, you're going to understand this. And, and you were kind of okay with that. Why, why were you okay with that? Yeah, well, the, uh, the, the wife uh, at the dinner table was asking questions about how they could help out their son who at a young age, five or six years old, was already having some social difficulty. And uh, I was doing my best, but I didn't have the answers readily available. And she got frustrated and said, well, you're really awkward. So <laughs> I said uh, she blushed and uh, felt awkward herself. But that was OK with me. I, I actually don't mind it if people say that I'm awkward. I think there's worse things. If someone called you selfish or mean – uh, I think those are problematic kinds of states. But uh, being awkward just means that you struggle with some of these small social interactions and some of these small social cues. 
Now, there is something about maybe a clinical diagnosis and, and, and something less than that. Where, where does your idea of awkwardness fit into that spectrum? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Somebody could be melancholy but not have major depressive disorder. Uh, someone might be high strung but not have an anxiety disorder. And in the same way, someone can be socially awkward and struggle with social skills or communication skills, but not necessarily have Asperger's or high-functioning autism. But the two are related, and it's really when you get to the top 1% of people who have social skill deficits and communication deficits, that's when it becomes diagnosable. And when do you start to see this kind of awkwardness begin to develop? Is it at a very young age? Most awkward people will tell you that they can remember being socially awkward for as long as they can remember. And I actually don't think I've met an awkward person uh, who hasn't told me that. So it emerges pretty early. Uh, There's a pretty good genetic component to social awkwardness. It's about 54% heritable in boys and 38% heritable in girls. And uh, yeah, kids will start to around fourth or fifth grade really start to feel – that they're behind in social interactions and they're having a hard time grasping some of the social situations and uh, routine expectations that other kids readily grasp. And and give me some of what what is this child feeling? What are they seeing? How are they interacting in a situation like, let's say, you know, meeting someone at a new place? I like like to give an analogy. Actually, there's um, a stage analogy that's helpful here. So let's imagine that you see life unfold before you on a stage, and that stage is broadly illuminated. So you could see people coming on the stage, people exiting the stage. You'd probably spend most of your time looking center stage because that's where most of the central interactions take place. Uh, But you could also gather social context, and that's the way most people see the social world. Now, awkward people, by comparison, see that stage spotlighted. So they have this narrow, intense beam, and it tends to fall a little left of center stage. And so that means they're going to miss some social information that most people are gathering. But it's also an optimistic picture because it says whatever falls under that spotlight might be a little bit unusual, and they'll see it with great clarity and great focus. Can you dig down a little bit deeper into what you mean when you said that this is similar to someone who has been diagnosed with autism? What are the direct connections between this? Well, what researchers find is that autism symptoms, and there's really three clusters of symptoms. It's social skill deficits, uh, communication problems, and uh, really kind of an obsessive interest in a specific area. Those symptoms are normally distributed in the general population on a bell curve. So that means the average person in the general population actually has a few awkward tendencies about them. And that's why people say everybody's a little bit awkward. That's actually true. Uh, We all have our unique little quirks. But as you get further out on that bell curve, let's say towards the top 20th, top 15th percentile, that's where you start to see people be awkward people. And then as you get past the 99th percentile, so the top 1%, that's when people become diagnosable. Now, your parents basically, I read, had to give you kind of a primer in ordering fast food at restaurants. Why was that? Well, they had to give me a primer about a lot of things, (laughs) it turned out. And uh, I was lucky that they did that. I'm sure I wasn't the easiest kid as we were going through these things, but I'm grateful for it now. 
And the fast food restaurant was a good example. So uh, I grew up in Longmont, and we'd pull up to the Wendy's on Main Street there in Longmont. And most families would just go inside. We would sit in the parking lot for about five minutes, and they would turn around and say, it's time to mentally prepare. (laughs) And this meant that we were going to go through a Socratic dialogue of what I should expect socially. And so they'd ask me questions like, what's the first thing you need to look for when you walk inside? And I would say, oh, I need to look for a line. Now, even though we've had this discussion dozens of times before, it was as if I was thinking about this for the first time in my life. And then they'd say, what do you need to do now? Well, I probably need to figure out what to order. Uh, probably need to get my money ready. I need to say thank you. when I. And we would do this, you know, dozens and dozens of times until I had a grasp of how to navigate that one social situation. And over time, over the course of many years, what happened is that I became comfortable in most routine social situations. And now it's to the point that I can do these things okay, but my friends will still make fun of me sometimes. We'll walk into a restaurant with clearly no line, and I'll double, triple take just to make sure that that I'm getting it right. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with Tai Tashiro, the former CU Boulder professor, is the author of Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. So how hard is it for you to navigate the world and how difficult is it for someone who is awkward to navigate the world? Well, it can be, it can be really challenging. I think especially when you're a kid or a teenager, There's this real assumption, I think, uh, at least in the United States, that you should just naturally and intuitively understand social situations. And, um, you know, we give a lot of broad advice to awkward people that's meant to be helpful. People will say, well, you just need to not be a wallflower or you just need to be comfortable in social interactions. But that doesn't really tell the awkward person much. Uh, A friend of mine gave me a great example of when he was a kid, when he heard I was writing this book, he said that he liked to take apart the toaster. So he's about 10, 11 years old. His parents would walk in and all of the toaster pieces would be laid out on the table. <laughs> They'd say, I can't believe you took apart the toaster again. But to him, it wasn't good enough to know that this box generated toast. He had to take the whole thing apart, really study the individual pieces, and then put it back together in a way that made sense to him. And I I love that example he gave because that's really the way the awkward mind works. It's part of the reason they tend to do well in science or mathematics, the kind of fields where you do have to take things apart and study the individual details. But that's the same way then a lot of awkward kids learn to navigate social life. It's not intuitive. They, They really have to study the pieces, and that takes a lot of time. So who decides who's awkward? Who makes that decision? Well, I guess people could decide for themselves it's, uh, since it's not diagnostic. Um, you know, 55% of people, if you just ask them if they're socially awkward, will say yes. So that's a lot of people do feel awkward. And I actually found sociological data to suggest that society in general, social life in general, has become a little bit more awkward for all of us. So I think it's a natural part of life. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, Most awkward people are well-intentioned and have a lot to offer. Sometimes I think if they could just skip the first five minutes of social interactions, they'd be a lot better off.
Is is there also a concern that maybe this is called different things by different people and by different uh, uh, medical professionals or, or, or things like that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the terms I think that's in popular culture now is on the spectrum. And it's one of those terms I think we should probably actually be careful about and on, on reserve the for – What do you mean? Uh, well, they'll say on the autism spectrum is, is where they're getting that phrase from. And uh, with autism, uh, there's a range of functioning from high functioning where people might be able to live independent lives and hold a job and get a place of their own uh, to folks who have much more severe symptoms. So they call it a spectrum of functioning. But I think what's happened now in popular culture is people will refer to awkward folks as being on a spectrum. And, and that's really not true. And it's a little bit insensitive, actually, to families who are struggling with uh, an autism diagnosis. So I think that's one of the things that happens. Another thing that happens is autism is one of the most overdiagnosed psychological conditions in the United States right now. About one in 88 kids are diagnosed with an autism disorder. And the real rate is probably more like one in 140 or one in 150. Because you're saying these these children are in, in fact uh, awkward in, in your definition. Yeah, they're, they're they're probably awkward, and they you know there's no language to talk about it, and this can get them into treatment tracks or educational tracks that might not be best for them in the long run, or even counterproductive. So I think it's it's good to have the language to say, hey, some of us are just socially awkward, and and that's all right. But uh, you might have to put some more work into understanding social cues and social situations. Probably have to practice a little bit more than the average person, actually a lot more. And awkward people can have really gratifying social lives and um, have very full relationships. Can you explain what social deposits and withdrawals are and why that's helpful for for people who, who may be awkward? Yeah, there's this curious finding in the social sciences that whether it's in marriage or friendship uh, or a working relationship, when you maintain a ratio of five positive behaviors to every one negative behavior with somebody, those relationships tend to be gratifying and uh, satisfying to people. It's helpful for awkward people because awkward people like to break things into details. And it's good to then be proactive about thinking, what are five positive things that I can contribute to this interaction to, to start things off. And uh, that prepares them then for the potential missteps they might have further down the road in the interaction. And they've kind of built up equity in case they, they have a misstep at some point. There was a lot of 12-year-old you in the book. Why was that such a focal point for you in your life, this 12-year-old time period? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I didn't realize that until about a week ago. <laughs> so much of it was middle school. I, I guess it's peak awkwardness for most people. Most people feel uh, certainly they're most awkward in middle school. It certainly was for me as well. I think part of the reason there was so much 12-year-old me in there is that it was a good uh, writing tool to say, here's a typical awkward situation. Like, let's say your first slow dance with somebody. But I always managed to add a little extra awkward sauce <laughs> to the situation, and I thought it was good to demonstrate, yeah, everybody can have an awkward moment, but awkward people might have extra awkward moments in those same situations. 
For someone who's listened to this interview and says, you are explaining me to a T briefly, what advice do you, do you give them? How, how should they kind of figure this out? Well, I, I think one of the first things to do is just to recognize it, right, and be okay with that. But awkward people usually pick up a lot of skills on their own, and I just might reinforce some of the things people naturally do. Uh, awkward people are very good observers, and they tend to be great observers of social situations. You'll oftentimes hear that they have watched how people greet each other or they'll watch how people handled a difficult conversation and they'll borrow or mimic some of those social behaviors. Uh, sometimes they'll even practice them at home in the mirror uh, to try to master those, those social skills. Ty? So I think that's a, a great thing that they can do. Yep. We got to break it there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ty Tashiro is a former Colorado resident at CU Boulder. He wrote the book Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.